Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cast of Caught, where we talk all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your co-host, Rachel, and joining me is a very special guest. That's right. DJ <laughs> is out of town. He is on an adventure, a solo adventure this time. So kindly stepping in to help me out is Randy, aka producer Randy, aka why isn't this working? Technology is not my friend. <laughs> help me, save me, Randy. Welcome to the show, Randy. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you for stepping in and helping me out so that DJ <laughs> can take course, a vacation. Of course, of course. Yeah, that yeah. guy deserves a little bit of time off. Right, right. That's I feel the same way. Um, I look forward to you and him recording together when I take a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you'll have me back after this. Well, we'll see. It's early. I'm usually, you know, in the shadows. That's right, you do. You work from the shadows primarily. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so your name is Randy, and in this recording, you have said that you are a Randall Flag. <laughs> I mean, it's a great opportunity. Maybe the only opportunity. Uh, so, I I, what I was wondering is if, like, you're, like, if you're sharing something with me that I did not know before. Well, I, I mean, my name is Rand. I think there's a connection, right? Right. It's been proven between all Randalls. And right. The RF. Yeah. So my middle initial is F. No, it's not. Really. I was like. <laughs> Fallon. <laughs> Anyways, well, welcome, yeah. Randy. Um, Thank you. So. Obviously, our audience doesn't know you yet. Mm-mm. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Uh, okay. Oh, 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 of course. A uh, little bit. Okay, so I won't go into the super deep detail. Yeah, I don't need to know. I was born on... Yeah, right. May, right. Well, like, blah, I come blah, blah, from blah. the desert, so... Okay. You know, I have a lot of, like... The wasteland. I come from the wasteland. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Um, no, I'm... I'm. I mean, evidenced by the fact that I'm here. I'm a pretty big nerd. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Nerds only. I'm a... I, yeah, I'm a, I'm a self-professed and very proud nerd. Um, I'm really, you know, into a lot of stuff that you and DJ are into. You know, mm-hmm. sci-fi, fantasy, horror. Cyberpunk. Cyberpunk. Like, yeah. Like, like... Adult anime... Not adult. Sorry. Animation for adults. <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute. Wait not a minute, like googly, like adult... An- no! <laughs> <laughs> animation anime yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that kind of stuff so it's just like the whole gamut of geeky stuff that yeah. i'm into uh like weird i you know i like weird stuff i someone asked me the other day they said like oh why are you into some of these like esoteric topics or whatever and i was just like oh, i've been around a while and like i've kind of seen like most of the normal stuff so it's like what you're <laughs> So we're recording this in person. Rachel is giving me uh, a look, and she's wondering, why like, did I? Why are you into such esoteric things? <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's a gentleman with a top hat and a, and a monocle. Apparently, we are broadcasting from up Randy's butt. I don't know <laughs> what is happening? Right no, now. no, no. Uh, so no, I'm just like I like weird topics like cryptids and ufos yeah. and you know stuff like that you know like oh okay. what is this whole ancient alien thing is it mm-hmm. real you know or was it just smart people in the past like their voice but you know things like that and so i like those kind of topics uh, it's just a, a a whole wide range but yeah so like in in the mix there is you know hold on a second i like sci-fi i like horror i like fantasy you know all that so then enter the dark tower Mm -hmm. um and uh you know i can thank you for introing me to it you know years ago at this point recruiting recruiting another one to the fandom (laughs) i mean i like to think that you you brought me into your quartet but okay i'll I'll take whatever i can get you're the jamie curry of our quartet for sure uh okay (laughs) (laughs) you'll have to explain that to me later okay uh so anyways yeah so it struck a chord with me. Uh-huh. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, we, we 
obviously have talked about it outside of the podcast, but yeah. I, I think I've told you, I think that it it's, it's really just like this incredible work of fiction mm-hmm. and that it is fiction. <laughs> right. Oh, <laughs> sorry, folks. Uh, <clears throat> this uh, totally, re- this totally real history of something that actually happened. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe who knows? Um, back to my esoteric topics. Mm. Uh, yeah. So I really just kind of found something in it that, that, spoke to me i don't know it's it's just so rich Mm -hmm. and even as we're going to find out as we talk about this chapter yeah just the the amount of detail that exists in it you know it's it's it is like the recounting of something that actually happened you know somewhere and it's uh something that is is just such a amazing work of world building and character building Mm -hmm. and I am always surprised that it just hasn't ever really sort of blown up in pop culture or in, right. you know, film or TV. You know, I've obviously heard you and DJ talk about the, the, the move, you know, the, the movie <laughs> and uh, you're like, what movie, what movie? There is no movie in Bossing City. <laughs> right, right. I've, obviously we've seen the movie. I've seen the movie. Um, you know, I know all about the Amazon project um you know that didn't go that didn't go through uh so you know i i'm really just really surprised because this is this is like up there or you know maybe surpasses something like lord of the rings in terms of you know the scope and just you know the the amount of of world building that's gone into it so anyways really drawn to it um i actually really really like um stephen king's works outside of of uh the dark tower so do you have a favorite like a uh, book or movie do you have a favorite stephen king joint i mean it, it it's kind of tough there's a lot that i really like and i like them for different reasons i think mm-hmm. i think that you know it's gonna sound like a <clears throat> total cop-out but you know I, I love the dark tower i think it's the best work of his that i've been exposed to so far mm-hmm. um but i you know there's just so many he tells so many diverse stories yeah you know christine it was like the very first work of his the the movie as a as a little kid i was exposed to and you know i was like whoa this car is like healing itself and what well, is this crazy i've never seen anything like this and mm-hmm. then you know even finding out that things later that things that i really loved uh in terms of like film or TV were actually written by or based on stories like the running man. It's like mm-hmm. a huge favorite campy sci-fi movie or, um, maximum overdrive. And I had no idea Stephen King was involved in that, let alone like wrote the screenplay and directed it. So, so I like cheesy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, cheesy I mean, stuff. listeners know I have a huge soft spot for maximum overdrive. I'm just in my head. I was laughing because I was just thinking about the exploding, tr- same exploding truck over and over mm-hmm. again. Just, Oh, hey, you know, so I'm just a, a big uh, Stephen King stan, as, right. the, as the kids say. Well, you've come to the right place then, because this is <laughs> this is the place for Stephen King stands. Uh, Stephen King haters to the left. Definitely. All right. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show and helping me out. Um, you're going to be playing the role of DJ today, which means you'll be doing the synopsis. And I'm, thank you. And it was kind of short notice. So I appreciate you hopping on. Of course. All right, so speaking of this episode, here is our plan for what we're going to get up to today. We are going to kick off the show with an in-depth conversation about Wizard and Glass, Part 3, Come Reap, Chapter 9, The Reaping, Sections 12 through 23. 
Normally we close out the show with a listener question, but because of our very wacky schedule, we don't really have one this time. But please, if you have not joined the Facebook, hop on because there will be one. We'll be back on our regular schedule for the next episode. All right. This is the point where I would usually ask DJ to give us a spoiler policy, and he riffs. <laughs> I cannot even begin to try to do yeah. what he does. So I'm just going to lay it out here. Basically, we our spoiler policy is that we only are going to talk about things that have happened up through this chapter. We're going to try not to spoil anything of the larger story or later chapters. And if we do, occasionally there will be a point that will come up where we really do have to talk about it in the larger context. And when that happens, we will let you know so that you can dip out or skip ahead or whatever it is you want to do. Or if you don't care about spoilers, then stay the course. All right. So with that said, let's get into the chapter. Now, I almost said DJ. (laughs) Muscle memory. Okay. Randy, where did we leave off? All right. So where we left off uh, was that Roland and the crew had been freed from jail. Mm-hmm. And they had blown up Sicko Field, uh, which let Jonas know that the game is definitely not over yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Jonas grabs Rhea, and, along with the glass, and some of his crew, uh, and heads out. While Roland, Cuthbert, and Elaine are lying in wait uh, so that they can ambush Jonas and his crew. Okay, however, Rhea uses the glass and is able to see that... Susan is lying in wait for Roland, and she's hiding out in the bad grass. So because of this information, Jonas splits up his party and scoops up Susan, where she's sleeping outside of a shack in the bad grass. That was uh, rough stuff. It was uh, I was very frustrated with our boy last time when he made the mistake of splitting up his content. But we'll get into that in this episode. So where do we pick up on Chapter 9? All right, so we start with Shimi who is in hiding and watching the scene unfold between uh, Jonas and Susan Delgado. So after Jonas heads out with Susan as his captive, uh, Shimi finally emerges from his hiding spot, uh, waits a moment, and then follows after them. I don't really have a ton to say about this, except for obviously I'm glad that Shimi is okay, because if he had been in the shack, I'm sure they would not have been kind to him. Maybe they would have taken him captive, maybe not. But... I I do think that this shows that cause has shifted cause very fickle and it changes allegiance a lot. And it seems that you're starting to see here that cause in some ways is still on their side, not so much in terms of protecting Susan, but the fact that they had left from there and the path, it had been long enough that their path was no longer visible so that Jonas wasn't able to follow along. All right. So after that scene, we switch to one where we have Roland, Elaine, uh, and Cuthbert also lying in wait uh, for Jonas. And at this time, Cuthbert is basically expressing his frustration that they're, that they're just now they're waiting again. And that basically since they've been to Magus, that's all they've been doing is waiting. And so then we get a little bit where Roland tells Cuthbert, basically, well, we're not going to be waiting much longer. Kind of feels like Bert is the voice of the audience here. He's tired of waiting, and we as the audience have been, it's been this t- building tension for, you know, chapters and chapters and chapters. Obviously, we've got some little bits of action here and there, and DJ will be would be happy to tell you that he is... um he would like more action. <laughs> and so I do feel like this chapter is kind of Roland telling Bert, but also King telling the audience that the wait is over and mm. it's about to pop off. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. 
All right. So speaking of the wait being over, there's mm-hmm. about to be kind of a, a major, I guess, you have to tell me if you think this is major, but a like a bit of a pivotal point in in this chapter, which is uh, Jonas and the glass and Rhea and their interaction. Uh, so Jonas and company all meet up at their temporary camp. He has Susan in tow, obviously. Susan sees Fran Lingle and she confronts him, uh, finally. <laughs> As he's turning around, she kicks him in the back and knocks him to the ground. I think she's on horseback, right, at this point. Uh, so she's up on her horse. She kicks Fran uh, Lingle in the back, knocks him to the ground, calls him a murderer. He does this, like, really ashamed, like, scuttle back to his men, which, like, she seems to take a lot of delight in. But she's interrupted by Jonas, uh, who, like, actually compliments her on her insults and then tells his gang that there might be some killing to do. So now we get to the point where he's going to take the glass, take the ball uh, from Rhea, and she's obviously not happy about this at all. But he, they basically draw guns on her, and he gives her a three count to hand over the ball, and almost gets to three. So she hands it over, and as he takes it, he's like overwhelmed with this energy or like overwhelmed with this pleasure and he tells uh, Rhea that she better get out of there he gives her a t- be nice I guess he gives her a 10 count uh, and she like starts to ride away as quickly as possible but she's like you know smacking the horse and as she's doing so the cart l- lurches ahead and she falls over backwards with her feet up in the air and it's kind of like this funny moment mm-hmm. and all of this like tense stuff that's going on um and so she basically just curses at them as she rides out of sight <laughs> yeah yeah so there's there, you're right this is kind of a pivotal scene there's some at least there's there's a little bit of satisfaction in the scene because you you see a few people who deserve it kind of get some humiliation. And on one hand, it's very satisfying. The other one, it's satisfying, but also a little bit like, oh, shit. So first off, first off is Lingle's reaction to seeing Susan, I think, is really interesting here. You know, there's shame maybe for the fact that he's here working with the big coffin hunters. But also, I think he's probably ashamed of what he did to her father. I don't know that he assumes that she knows, but I think seeing her is a reminder of the fact that he had left her without a father. And either way, he's not happy to see her there. And I think ever since Roland and Jonas faced off outside the bar K, he seemed kind of like he's realizing that he's in over his head a little bit. I think that it's gotten a little too real for Fran and he is experiencing some regret, but What's great about this scene is, like I said, you do get to finally see get Susan get a sliver of justice for the murder of her uh, of her father when she calls him out for the crimes and humiliates him in front of all of his men and makes him just look small and petty and deceitful and, you know, not this honorable leader of the Horseman's Association that he presents himself to be. She really exposes him. And as a result, we see him scuttling back to his men. And I think his reaction is just about as obvious a admission of guilt as you could possibly have. And it's it's just kind of nice to see him get knocked low, literally and figuratively as well. So that was really great. And it's just, you know, I really love Susan. I think she gets short shrift between her breaking them out of jail and now... Being in this really intense situation and having a lot of pride and the way that she stands up for herself and the way that she 
calls this man out fearlessly in front of all these people instead of being afraid as you would be as a captor. It just is a reminder of what a badass she is and how much I really love Susan. And I know we're leading into bad things for Susan, but at the same time, I'm glad she kind of got this moment of reckoning with Fran Lingle. It, it closes the loop on a story that would be kind of sad not to have some resolution around. Yeah. The other thing that happens here is that Reynolds is starting to get this gut feeling that things are going to go really poorly in the future. He's anxious. He so instead of being upset when he gets sent away by Jonas to take Susan to Seafront, he's actually relieved. And I don't think it's a case of him having the touch so much as he is a part of this sort of messed up quartet, right? He, it, Jonas and the gang are a part of a quartet, and I do think they're, it, he, it gives him the ability to pick up that there really is something off about Jonas. He spotted it when they were a while back, like after, right after the confrontation with Roland, he could tell from a distance that something was off with Jonas. But now it's kind of manifesting in a way that he is anxious about what that's going to mean for their fate. And he has this low grade instinct and anxiety about it. And we've talked a lot about, you don't know this, but DJ and I have talked a lot about the parallels between our two quartets. And typically the plot beats are more clear because they're pretty much in lockstep. But in this, in this case, it really had me thinking about what was happening to Roland's quartet early in the book when it was in disarray because Roland had his own kind of an addiction of his own. Uh -huh. He was obsessed with Susan, but instead of Susan, Jonas is growing increasingly obsessed with this wizard's glass. Uh -huh. It's clouding his thinking and it's disrupting kind of the fabric of this quartet in a uh -huh. way that is making Reynolds nervous, even though he may not know exactly what can't quite put his finger on what it is, but something is off in a way that is making him really uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think between that growing obsession with the wizard's glass and Roland's words about him being a failed gunslinger, there is just a new vulnerability and recklessness to Jonas that is, that Reynolds is picking up mm -hmm. on. Like Bert and Elaine were able to kind of recognize that even though Roland wasn't being forthcoming about what was going on, they were generally uneasy. However, in this case, <laughs> The timing for this could not be worse for Jonas and the gang. All that stuff happened with Roland and, and Cuthbert earlier when there was still some time between things popped off. Here we are at Endgame. And if this quartet is crumbling because the head of the quartet is off his game, it could not be worse for them, mm -hmm. essentially. Another thing that really stood out to me in this section and in the reading before was that Jonas has a new nickname for, some, for Susan. He keeps calling her Sunbeam. Mm -hmm. So... On the surface, I think it's kind of obvious that it's a reference to her beauty, her young, you know, youth, her long blonde hair. All of those things are very evocative of sunbeams, right? But thematically, it does kind of call back to this overarching story of Susan and Ro being Roland being star-crossed lovers. Uh -huh. And after all, what is a sun but a star? So I do think there's a lot of there's a lot of like celestial imagery throughout this book. Like all the chapters are named after moons and all the moons have some reference to what's actually mm -hmm. happening in the story. Yeah. And it I plays think a big part. Exactly. Like we're going to talk about demon moon here in a second, mm -hmm. but he, I do think that that is kind of a subtle kind of reminder that she is one of our star crossed lovers. So Jonas is like you said, ready to take the ball now. And instead of letting Rhea, threaten him by saying she's going to break the, the glass he calls her bluff and takes it and he's successful and it's in some ways less eventful than you think it would be but 
what struck me was sort of the timing of this. It seems a little strange. Like, why would he choose now of all times to take the ball? Why not let her continue to carry the ball until they meet up with Latigo or Mm -hmm. they meet up with Farson himself and, Mm -hmm. like, let Farson deal with Rhea? Like, especially if they know what it's causing or the fact that it is causing her to become more and more decrepit or it's drawing power from her. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and so I guess it begs the question of, is he just like so eager to get his hands on it? Yeah. He's drawn to it. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So either way, whether it's whatever, whatever the reason, the fact that remains that it is pretty much a tactical error on a couple of fronts. On one hand, now the ball has him. He doesn't have the ball as much as the ball Mm -hmm. has him, but also he has further split up his quartet. So she, she was a late addition to the quartet, but now he's sending her away. He's and, sending everyone away, or he's sending all. Well, I mean, he still has the pape with him, and he right. still has the horse. But the, in terms of his core quartet, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, Reynolds sending Reynolds away makes him more vulnerable, and then obviously sending Rhea away, she is a liability in some ways. But if you think about how their luck shifted directly as a result of Rhea. She's the one that spotted them, spotted spotted Susan in the glass. She's the one that was able to explain to Jonas or lead Jonas to understand what the significance of seeing Susan outside that shack in the bad grass meant. You know, she probably could have been helpful in this battle moving forward. She might have seen the boys sneaking up on him, you know, but he sends her away and basically hamstrings himself in this way. Was he just thinking maybe, I don't need her, I can use this thing just as well as her. I think... She's a liability or whatever, or I just want it. I. Hey, if if the good man wants this thing, it must be pretty awesome. So I'm going to take a look at it. I don't know. I mean, there's the the failed gunslinger, you know, it's like maybe this is his chance to sort of... Z's mm-hmm. importance or be important that's a good point that could very well be it could be sort of because that is definitely still living rent free in his mind he cannot get over the stuff that Roland said to him like even in the heat of battle when we get there he's still thinking about the stuff yeah. that Roland said to him what regardless whatever reason it, ultimately what matters is that it's a major tactical error because instantly as soon as he touches it he it, his <laughs> mind is twisted by this yeah. thing um, he's he's vulnerable for he's he was already kind of vulnerable from being called out, but now he's vulnerable because he is blind to threats. Mm-hmm. Instantly, he feels this overwhelming sense of confidence that is making him blind to the danger that he's actually mm-hmm. facing. So I pulled this quote because I actually thought it was very emblematic of what's going on in uh, Jonas's sure, head. So I'm yeah. ready to. He grabbed the bag just below the draw top and yanked. Rhea screamed again as the string skinned her knuckles and tore off one of her nails. Jonas hardly heard. His mind was a white explosion of exultation. For the first time in his long professional life, he forgot his job, his surroundings, and the 6,000 things that could get him killed on any day. He had it. He had it. By all the graves of all the gods, he had the fucking thing. So, like I said, worst timing possible when he needs to be the most on his guard, he now is so confident and so blind to the dangers around mm-hmm. him that it's going to come back and bite him. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, and you have to, you know, you hear something like that. You have to wonder, like, is the glass giving him sort of this, like, false confidence? Because it Absolutely. feeds off of, maybe it, it also feeds off of that as well. Mm. It's not just passively just 
feeding off of people. It like wants a certain kind of emotion or something from them. Hmm. Maybe. I hadn't thought about that. So yeah, last thing on this section, it was great to see humiliate like Rhea humiliated as well. She's been such a nasty piece of work through this whole thing. And to see her get laughed at it part is in part kind of enjoyable because it's the thing that wounds her the most is to be humiliated. Mm. But on the other hand, it also makes her the most dangerous. And considering we know that Susan is very much in the line of her fire and someone that she has a huge grudge against. Like, it's a little bittersweet. Right. Uh, this is really fueling her anger, yeah. right? It's just pumping it to the maximum. Right. And she can't really get back at these men who are laughing at her. She's going to pick off someone she thinks is more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, the not the last. It's like she's riding off, but you know, right? It's just, you feel like this is not the last we're going to see of her. No. She is very much out for blood now, as we learn that's quite literally right she's right. out for blood at this point and as she goes away she curses them and i'm not saying that it worked but it doesn't take that long for the curse to come true that's all i'm saying, that's all I'm saying. right right she's she's not just cursing she's not just swearing at them she's literally cursing them mm-hmm. all right so what happens after uh Rhea is stripped of the glass uh, is that jonas tells reynolds uh that he wants him to take susan back to seafront and as part of telling him this, he basically says, look, along the way, you can do whatever you want to Jesus, Susan. Such a um, piece of shit. And, and there's actually a part in here, I don't know if you have any notes about, where it's basically you get sort of Reynolds' thought process about, like, is, you know, he, he thinks way too much uh, about, like, well, am I going to take advantage of her, like, on the way, or am I going to wait till I get there? Uh, so, you know, it's if you didn't know that this is the gross content uh already now you do yeah um so susan she uh has been basically beaten up um she is you know just on horseback completely silent she doesn't react to this even though she hears jonas tells reynolds uh, to give coral a message that he wants uh, her to keep susan safe until she hears from jonas uh, he also tells reynolds uh, to be coral's escort to ritzy which reynolds is glad to do so as reynolds and susan ride away jonas he tells his gang uh, that susan is the actually the one that helped elaine and cuthbert and roland break out of jail and so the whole crew just gets angry and up in arms uh, but he pulls back their attention to try to get them hyped up for the fact that they have to confront roland and the katat and that they also have to get their gas tankers out past eyebolt uh, before n- night falls yes so obviously i've sung jonas's praise <laughs> quite a bit as we read these books because i think he's such a great villain mm. this this makes it a little harder <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah anytime someone says something like this right yeah yeah that's that's that does not endear me to jonas i still think he's a really complex and interesting villain and would love to hear his backstory but this is not a good look for him so reynolds himself is obviously happy to going to seafront and to take coral even further away off to ritzy and i think there's a couple of things at play here we've talked a little bit about how jonas not being himself and clearly under this like falling under the sway of the, the glass is part of it but i also think and uh they talked about this in a couple chapters ago where there is a sense of general unease in in Magus, where everybody feels like something is off and they're on the cusp of something bad is going to happen. And so I think there's sort of just sort of this low-grade hum of 
something uncanny and general uneasiness that is being exacerbated by Jonas being weird. And the other thing that they add to this, and again, this comes back to the use of astrology, astronomy, not astrology. That's mm-hmm. a very different experience. <laughs> um, astronomy to kind of paint a picture of thematically or a mood or whatever. And obviously this is all taking place. This is obviously all taking place under the demon moon, but we get this great description of it that what I was not aware of. And I don't think that this has been true of the other moons is that it is still visible during daylight. He is thinking about whether or not he's going to assault Susan gross. And he says not under the ghostly full daytime demon moon. So, to me, this kind of is another way that you can understand why he would feel uneasy, but also kind of speaks to the way that thematically the moons and the all of the celestial stuff like actually really mirrors the themes. And that here we are at this showdown when all of this stuff is happening and we have this very uncanny, unnatural experience of having a daylight moon and to have it to be the big, huge, grinning demon moon really does kind of cast a a sense of unease over the all the proceedings. It's one of the, I love how they use, he uses these descriptions because it really does paint sort of a very cinematic picture. Yeah, it's really kind of creepy and mm-hmm. like kind of is you know that you're in this other world. Unlike Reynolds, Jonas has never felt more confident than he does in this moment. The ball is making him feel basically invincible. And it's this false sense of invincibility. It's like a high. It's it's almost like he's on. It, it's like the false sense of high and confidence and hubris that you get from drug use. And I think it's kind of a reminder that, of this ongoing sort of theme of almost like addiction that he is addicted to the ball in the way that Roland was kind of addicted to Susan. And so, of course, he's, like, high on his own supply right now. You know, we're going to see that all of this confidence that he's had, that he's, like, spouting at these men is uh, maybe not so justified. (laughs) A little misplaced. Yeah. So, despite all of this, Jonas rallies his troops, as you said, and and he tells them, we're close to 40 men going to join another 150. They're three and not one day over 16. Are you afraid of three little boys? No, they cried. If we run on him, my colleagues, what will we do? Kill them! The shout so loud that it sent rooks it sent rooks rising up to the morning sun, calling their displeasure as they commenced the hunt for more peaceful surroundings. So, again, this is pointing once again to Jonas making the mistake of thinking of them as boys again and not men, and using their youth as a a sign or a place where he can feel confident that they can be easily defeated and are nothing to fear, despite the fact that Jonas should know better at this point. And that is either hubris or likely, more likely just the ball giving him this, like I said, this false confidence that he has and making him think that the fact that they're gunslingers doesn't matter just because they're young. And as a result, what ends up happening is Jonas has basically in this moment, his full like Lord Perth moment. Mm-hmm. You know, he gets everyone hyped for this unlosable battle, uh-huh. right? And then ends up getting killed by a kid before he can even leave town. <laughs> so I don't know if you remember the the parable of Lord Perth from these books, that he's this warlord that has this huge suit of armor. And as he's marching out to war, a small child throws a rock and hits him in the knee and he falls and breaks his neck. 
Right, right. So this is sort of, this is his Lord Perth moment. I know it's been a while since you've read The Wasteland, but anyway. Yeah. So I wanted to, so it didn't. No, no, you can definitely see the parallel here. Yeah, yeah. Lots of, throughout, like, lots of parallels, right? Yes. And then, of course, as listeners know, I'm very obsessed with all the bird metaphors in this. And we get one here where he says that the, the rooks take off, calling their displeasure. And it's just a reminder that rooks are omens of bad luck. And it's also a bit oh. of a callback to the rook skull that that Cuthbert was carrying around the lookout. Right. And the one that got them, you know, pegged yeah. for, for murder. Exactly. Of the mayor. All right. So all this time... Shimi has been watching this scene play out because he had followed them all to the clearing where they're having this discussion and this rally and such. So he sees Rhea, what happens to her in her cart. He sees Rhea take off and she actually heads past him and he's hidden in the bush. So I think he, she almost hits him. Yeah, she almost hits him. She's so furious and angry at what Jonas has done to her that she doesn't even notice Shimi there. And Shimi's like really thankful grateful that she didn't see him because he says you know basically if she had seen me she might have turned me into you know um a a mosquito or a a billy bumbler or you know like she's gonna turn me into (laughs) there are worse things that could happen getting turned into a billy bumbler all right yeah so he decides you know he's gonna follow after susan and reynolds and he thinks about how he's gonna go about that and then he sees the mule cappy and he thinks about, you know, okay, maybe I should take Cappy. But then he realizes, oh, no, Cappy might bray and, like, give up my location or just, you know, get me in trouble. So he's not going to. But he has this moment where he says goodbye to Cappy, mm-hmm. you know, and kind of heads on his way. Yeah. Oh, Cappy. So I think at this point in the book, it would be very easy to feel pretty hopeless about Susan's situation right now if it were not for the fact that Shimi is close on her heels. And once again, Shimi, who he really shows how clever he is. First of all, he has emotional and I don't know what you would call it, maybe like moral intelligence in that he sh- it shows in the way that he is so disappointed and saddened by seeing the other the you know cowboys and men from town siding with the big coffin hunters mm-hmm. but also we see that he's just intelligent deciding to leave cappy behind even though it would make traveling a lot easier because he recognizes that it could potentially give him away it just shows that he is actually quite intelligent mm-hmm. and uh is he's even though Cappy's like his friend, he says goodbye to him. Yeah, most people would, would, would have just in an instant taken a transportation. Yeah, exactly. And then been given away by the noise and the, the right. mule made. And I just think it's this little mention here is meant to, to remind you that do not underestimate Shamey. He's actually a lot smarter than um, the people in town would think he is. Mm-hmm. And he's throughout the book, there have been these moments where you really do kind of understand like the internal life of Shimi and and what a smart and sweet and perfect angel that he is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there needs to be someone like Shimi in this book and, and in this universe, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, Cuthbert's also a sweet yeah. little angel, so, but whatever. Okay, anyway. well, more, more Shimi's, more Cuthbert's. Yes, exactly. So at this point, uh, we switch back to Roland and the gang. Um, they are sensing, or rather Roland gets the sense that Jonas and his posse um, and probably the glass is probably what he's sensing, right? As we're gonna we're gonna learn, uh, are headed their way. Um, so Cuthbert gets really serious at this point, um, and Roland thinks that their plan can work if they're able to hold their nerve. But much of this is going to be up to Bert and his slingshot, mm-hmm. um, and this will you know really 
be the point where they'll kind of prove themselves. Like, they either have to prove themselves as gunslingers or die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while Jonas may be on high alert now, uh, they hope that maybe he's calmed down a bit when he's reached the clearing. Uh, and that's what their plan depends on. Stephen King has such a great time when he's writing this this kind of dialogue. And when he's getting... You can really feel his voice in these moments where he's getting into, like, Western mode. Mm-hmm. So I pulled this quote. Today it was Cuthbert and Elaine's turn to be tested. Not in Gilead, in the traditional place of proving behind the Great Hall, but here in Magus, on the edge of the bad grass, in the desert, and in the canyon... Prove or die, Elaine says. That's what it comes down to. And I was just like, Ooh, chills. Ooh, it's so good. Yeah. Also, there's just a little kind of character beat moment here where Bert is unsmiling and without the laughter, without the smile, there's a hollowness to his eyes, that of a killer. Mm-hmm. And it's just a reminder that Bert does actually know when to turn it off, regardless mm-hmm. of what uh, Roland thinks. Bert is just as much, even though he is the comic relief a lot of the time in this book, he is just as capable as these other boys are. Mm-hmm. And uh, he does have that killer instinct in him as well. After leaving Jonas, Reynolds finds himself and Susan writing faster and faster. But eventually, Reynolds has to stop and relieve himself. And it's at this point that Susan points out that he seems really afraid. This goes back to what you were talking about earlier uh, with with Reynolds being the one that has the sense of what's going on. And in fact, that sense of some kind of dread or there's something wrong... Reynolds thought that if he got out of, you know, Jonas's sphere, that, no pun intended, that he would start to feel better and less afraid and less worried about things, but it's actually not happening. And so Susan is really, like, catching on to this and, like, bringing this up. And, you know, she basically says, look, you're afraid, like, maybe if you let me go, you know, Roland will let you go. (laughs) But Reynolds still, you know, just, I guess, maybe not considering that Roland is a threat, just laughs it off and they head on on on, on their way. Yeah. Yeah, once again, Susan is the best. <laughs> she accurately calls out Reynolds and it's very satisfying. Who knows what's going to happen moving forward, but I, I just love these moments where Susan kind of, I don't know, she doesn't realize how much danger she's in and she just really has faith that Roland's going to find her or if she's resigned to her fate. Whatever the case is, you see her bravery here and what Susan is made of. And it just, again, just really endears me to her and is very satisfying to see her calling these these guys out. We now go to Cord. Ugh. Cord. Cord, Cord is still just beside herself with the events that have transpired. She's at home by herself. She's just thinking about how, you know, she lost her place in society and this chance at money. And basically she's snapped out of this momentarily by this scratching at her window. So she goes to see what's making the noise. Uh, come to find out it's Rhea, uh, who is crawling on the ground. So you just get this image of like a ghoul, just, you know, from, from like a scary movie or video game or something like this ghoul crawling along the ground. And Cord is just like, hey, I'm not going to let you in. Like Rhea wants to come in. She's like, no way. You're gross. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. stay out. Um, but Rhea says that she knows where Susan is and that they have some quote unquote women's work to do Mm -hmm. so at this point cord agrees she wants some degree of revenge as well Uh, but Rhea tells cord that she needs to be refreshed so at this point you find out what that means uh, when Rhea hypnotizes cord and uh, Rhea hypnotizes cord 
um, and forces Cord to cut open her own abdomen so that Rhea can drink the blood that comes pouring out. Ugh. Just when you think that Rhea cannot get creepier. I know I've said that before, but she just finds new ways to just be hideous and creepy as hell. Oh, yeah. So not happy to see Aunt Cordelia back. And while her rage is pretty impotent on its own, teaming up with Rhea makes her infinitely more dangerous. So this is really, really bad news. We find out that after cursing Susan and having the big scene outside and getting basically called out for her own sins and her own part in Pat Delgado's murder, she has gone practically catatonic. She's just sat up all night, not doing anything. And we get her unguarded thoughts. And I'm trying to think of how it's been very rare. There've been a couple of moments like when she spots Roland and Susan waving at each other, we kind of got in her head there. Uh, her interactions with Jonas, we've seen a little bit, we've gotten a little insight into her, but this is the first time since she's gone completely bonkers that we've gotten some insight into what is going on in her head. And we've, and unsurprisingly, what's going on in her head is that she's made herself the victim of all of this. Uh, I pull this quote. Everything had come down with a smash. All her hopes of the fortune Thorne would settle on Susan and Susan's child, perhaps while he still lived, certainly in his dead letter. All of her hopes of ascending to her proper place in the community. All of her plans for the future, swept away by two willful young people who couldn't keep their pants up. So really, this is, you find out exactly all of the things that Susan suspected that was driving Cord did, is in fact driving her. Her Mm -hmm. greed, her desire for status, um, as well as, I think, to some degree, just some some amount of security in this community and the society that does not afford that to spinsters. Mm -hmm. But... But she's not even talking about that so much. She's talking about status and she's talking about money. And she's as selfish and awful as you assumed that she would be. Right. There's also a little continuity error in this section. I don't know if you noticed it. I did. Stephen King switches back and forth between talking about her needlepoint, like her sewing Uh and her knitting. Ah, okay, okay. Continuity alert. More specificity, please, or maybe I mean, too much two very different things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, it doesn't matter. All right, so when Rhea makes her appearance, as you said, she shows up and she is more creature than human by this point. And so she, she does so by scratching at the window. And the thing that Cord thinks at first is, it's a bird. Right, <laughs> I right. gotta point out the bird mo- metaphors. Right, all right. <laughs> yeah, you think it's a little bird tapping or scratching. Her. Yeah. So when she gets outside, Rhea somehow looks even worse, which is... Oh, yeah. It's shocking that every time you think that she could not possibly be worse, she finds a way Are to be more hideous. you gonna talk about the description? I mean, I could. I didn't pull it, but let me see. An incredibly old woman was crawling through the frost-filled flower bed next to the house, crawling toward her. The crone's stingy white hair, what remained of it, hung in her face. Sores festered on her cheeks and brow. Her lips had split and and drizzled blood down her pointed, warty chin. The corneas of her eyes had gone a filthy gray yellow, and she panted and cracked like a bellows when she moved. Right, so it's like almost like a zombie being outside in your flower bed. Surprise! You thought it was a bird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So obviously, when Cord first sees her, she wants nothing to do with it, right? <laughs> you know, despite the fact that she is very clearly in distress, <laughs> the only thing that Cord is really concerned with 
even in this moment, even when she's sitting here in the chair, like rocking and talking about how she's ruined, she's still worried about her reputation. <laughs> she thinks that people are watching, you know, all the people around them are watching her. Right, know? right. Nobody gives a shit about Cord. But we find out there's one thing, one thing that Cord counts more, even more than status and money, uh -huh. and that is revenge. Her hatred of Miss Oh So Young and Pretty is her greatest motivation at this point. So, reputation be damned. When she finds out there's an opportunity to get uh -huh. revenge against Susan, she ushers her right on into the house. Uh, pulls her in. <laughs> yeah. Drags her in. Yeah. The mention of women's work is really interesting here, too. Yeah. So, could you talk about this a little? Well, I don't know. I, I was trying to kind of figure out what I think that means. And I think there's a couple of things you can interpret it as whatever they're planning is a kind of revenge that only another woman could visit on another. Got it. Yeah. That's or what it, I thought. Or it could just kind of speak to larger cultural norms there where this is, there is some degree of women's work that is about controlling and punishing other women to keep them in line. Okay. So I'm not sure which of those two it is, or I don't know that it could be D all of the above. Yeah. I was like, is it some kind of magic? Like what's happening? Like <sighs> I mean, magic only women can perform. I don't. I don't exactly know. Or, or the part with the what what happens with her hypnotizing? You know, is it? Yes, because once inside, she does hypnotize her using the same silver charm that she, that she used on Susan right at the beginning mm -hmm. to make her want to cut off all her hair, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But and you know, it's really gross. We find out she's refreshing herself by drinking blood. I don't know what that says about Rhea. But the most important thing to me here is that when she sees the blood, she has this memory of a field of red roses and a dark figure, a.k.a. the tower in the mm -hmm. center, which begs some serious questions like, has Rhea been there? When? Why? Yeah, where is this coming from? It's yeah. Just like, the blood reminds me of this. Like, okay, did you see it in a dream? I mean, it sounds like maybe she's been to the dark tower. Uh-huh. Which, I don't know. I don't know. It's just kind of interesting. Right. And why in that moment the, the is it just the red of the blood is the same as the flowers it just seems like an interesting we're at this sort of pivot point in the story in terms of cause definitely a thumb on the scale in a lot of ways and roland's path is being forged right now whether or not he's going to reunite with susan and become domesticated and have a family like he's dreaming of right now or or not be reunited with her and become the Roland that we become, you know, we know him to become, which is like the, the final gunslinger mm -hmm. driven by his obsession to find the dark tower. We know the outcome of that, but I think it's interesting that at this moment in the story, at this pivot point where these two women are plotting against Susan, that the dark tower comes to her mind. Yeah. It, it appears to her. Yeah. Next we, we cut back to Roland and the gang in hiding, uh, waiting for Jonas and his posse. Um, they finally hear the approach of Jonas's gang. And so at the same time, they're both glad, uh, but they're also start to get a little afraid that maybe they're too close uh, and that Jonas's posse is going to detect them uh, hiding and wait. So it turns out that the posse actually gets close enough to them that they would have been detected but for whatever reason jonas doesn't spy them and they notice that jonas's men are kind of spread out you know there's 
they're not just in one big group or one big line going through. Uh, they're actually, you know, there's some in the back and, and they're not exactly all close to one another. So, you know, Roland thinks that, you know, once they get to the desert, they'll probably be even more spread out. And after uh, the posse passes, Roland tells Elaine and Cuthbert that it's time to mount up because reaping has come. Yes. I love it when Stephen King gets all westerny and someone who's been reading these books for months and months years this is this book in particular months and months this is the moment that we were waiting for i'm like oh my god mount up roland tells elena kuzbert reapings come Ooh, mm-hmm. I, I love it when stephen king gets all western mm-hmm. like mount this. up yeah it, this i like that the scene kind of shows you the the whim and the power of Kaw that they come so close that they if they get spotted they won't be able to ambush them they'll be defenseless but instead it just brings them just close enough that they don't get spied, but also they have an opportunity to get eyes on everything that's happening in this line. Mm-hmm. So they know who's leading the party, where they're located, how many there are, yeah. who is in the party. Yeah. All that information that they get that allows them to have even more of an upper hand when it finally comes down to the field of battle. Mm-hmm. So immediately after this, Roland and Elaine Cuthbert spring into action, executing Roland's plan. And basically once you know Jonas's posse has ridden past them and giving them just enough room to not be detected, uh, kind of at the back of the pack, they start riding up and systematically, one by one, taking out the members of Jonas's posse. There's not super great visibility, so you just get this like scene of them using knives and Cuthbert's slingshot to pick off uh, the posse members one by one and they're able to do this quietly and stealthily and so they're not detected and they end up killing seven of the men and then at this point roland then pantomimes to the other two where they should head next and they begin uh, closing their distance to the main group of the posse it's such a cinematic scene I pulled another quote. I think this is the last one. (laughs) Uh, The wind howled high and lonesome, carrying big drifts of gritty dust under a cloudless, dark blue sky. Demon moon stared down from it like the filmed eye of a corpse. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. The gunslinger action is so sparing in these books Mm -hmm. that on one hand, you're just like, oh, I want more. But at the same time, when it does happen, it has so much impact. Mm-hmm. It's so exciting. Like, for instance, we finally get to see Bert use his slingshot. We've been hearing about how good he is, mm-hmm. and we've seen him, like, pull it out, but we haven't actually seen him properly use it before. He's doing this on horseback. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a gunslinger. What uh-huh. do you do? And so I love that we get to finally see that. We also get to see the two sides of what makes gunslingers so formidable, and that is their their tactics as well as their pure skill are both come into play in, in this, um, in the scene, which is really fun to see. And one small detail I wanted to point out is when they start killing off the men from behind, Roland remembers the quote story of the shoemaker and the flies, which is essentially the tailor and the flies, which mm-hmm. is, you know, cause there's always like a slight remix on the stuff. Right. 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 Which is about a, a young man who uses his wits to overcome a bunch of giants essentially yeah. and he becomes wealthy and marries a princess and all this stuff but and i mean to some degree it applies because it is like this young these young boys against what should be kind of like this overwhelming show of force with yeah. you know, dozens of grown men hard men that should, yeah. should armed so, men exactly so 
But I think, moreover, it's a reminder that even in this moment, as the battle has begun, that Roland is still a boy. Mm-hmm. That his mental references, his go-to examples are a fairy tale. Yeah. As opposed to a life experience. Mm-hmm. All right. So as they can continue on their attempt to, to take out Jonas's posse, uh, Bert manages to take out a couple more of the men in the back of the pack before he misses one. But Roland promptly shoots them. And obviously by shooting, instead of using the knife, it's obvious that the time for stealth is over. So Roland shouts out for his gunslingers to join him. And then that's when the shooting begins in kind of this dust storm on horseback. Uh, They make quick work of most of Jonas's men. They either kill them outright or injure them and let them get trampled by the horses. Mm -hmm. It's this very evocative, you know, scene. Yes, yes, it's so good. (laughs) And so as they make their way to the front of the pack, so they just imagine them like coming up through this package just either killing or like wounding all of Jonas's guys mm-hmm. they come into the pack and Fran Lingle tries to pull his machine gun <laughs> but it gets stuck on the collar of his duster Renfrew on the other hand uh, is manages to get his gun and aim it at the at the boys but Roland doesn't retreat yeah, okay, I lied. I do have one more quote in this section that I want to talk about. Oh, okay. sure, sure. All right, so the time itself is officially over. Like you said, he he calls out to, like, Heil, come to me. Yeah. And starts shooting. go, basically. Yeah. Yes, yes. And so at this point, Roland is completely out, behind, out from behind his hillock. We are in the final end game confrontation between him and Jonas mm-hmm. and this is the moment we've been waiting for yeah. like finally get to see that they are fully unleashed and we got a little taste of that when they first confronted Jonas's men in the Traveler's Inn yeah but here we are seeing them in full gunslinger mode they're in battle mode exactly and there's this really great quote that I pulled about what that looks like screaming not a single thought among them above the wrists of their deadly hands they slice into the unprepared mages party like a three-sided blade shooting as they went oh it's so good it's so good it's so good it just makes me really bummed that we have been robbed of the opportunity to see this on screen yeah Dan, curse you, Amazon, for so many reasons, oh but especially gosh. this. <laughs> I want it Dude, so bad. I gotta hopefully get someone in at some point. Yeah. Like, somehow it gets out there. The pilot. I mean, the pilot, some people have gotten to see it. I know. I know. But this scene in particular. I know, I really want can, it so bad. In your bad. mind's eye, mm-hmm. your mental, you know, I mean, it just, it's Stephen King has many strengths as a writer, but one of his best things is he really does implant himself in your brain and provide you with what is essentially like a movie in your head. Yeah. It, it's really you impressive. You cannot help but imagine, like, picture this in your mind's eye yeah. when it happens. And the idea of just they're not i mean that's what really stuck with me they're not thinking above their hands it's It's, just the guns and mm -hmm. what the guns are gonna do and they're being just like subconsciously just driven to execute flawlessly like clockwork right on this plan Mm -hmm. yeah and it becomes very very clear very very quickly that these men despite being super pumped up by jonas and confident about their ability uh they're just no match 
They're no match for these boys. And along with all these sort of nameless backs, we just blaze through all of these townspeople who we've come to know. Mm-hmm. And they're just killed totally unceremoniously. Right. Which I think there's a degree of realism to that. Like, it's very honest in the oh, way sure. it's just like... They He's just not going to take... wait and give a, you know, soliloquy about, you yeah. know, this guy did this and... But I mean, even just the way that they're killed, there's not like any sort of back and forth shooting for the most part. Like, it's yeah. really just like, blam, 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 blam. Which is exactly yeah. how it would be. And, yeah. And... You have three um, gunslingers that have gone into full gunslinger mode. Yeah. There would not be a lot of time. For, no. And if they make them look like the bumbling fools that they are. Yeah. You can yeah. almost imagine it just happening in just such quick succession that mm-hmm. it's almost like imperceivable that, that, you know, there's any decisions being made. It's just executed. Yep. Okay. All right. So Jonas, as he's writing, has no idea that his group is being massacred behind him. Even when he does hear Roland's battle cry, his first thought is just about the ball and like not, or the glass and not dropping it and like Mm -hmm. how fragile it is. So he watches as Roland kills Renfrew. Again, like you were saying, like there's just kind of no hesitation with these things. Kills Renfrew, Lingle, and then DePape. Yeah. DePape goes out just like, like it's nothing right it's just like oh and he kills the pain <laughs> right you would think i i, I can kind of see with like rinfield and hooky like who gives a shit about them but you would think that there would be some degree of shootout like back and forth between debate and and junas and roland and the boys and it's just really it's so unbelievably one-sided it's kind of great and also just kind of shocking and a little bit anticlimactic but in a way that feels correct if that makes any sense no no definitely definitely Mm. so jonas you know even though he was sort of wrapped in like the influence of the glass he can't believe what's happening but at the same time it's almost like the 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 fact that his luck has run out is dawn dawned on him and like kind of you know the bad feeling reynolds had it's all kind of like coming down on him right so Roland and, and Elaine and, and Cuthbert catch up to him. Jonas threatens to destroy the glass, thinking that Roland will want to protect it. Calls out to his men, but discovers basically that they're all dead. The gunslingers have killed them all. So at this point, as he's holding the glass in, in one hand, a Roland shoots and blows off his hand and catches the glass. Like catches the bag that's holding the glass. Before Jonas can shoot Roland, Roland shoots him twice in the face at point blank range. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. It's not, it's the last thing I, cause I'm now, I, I have read these books before, but I have talked about this many times. I have a terrible memory. <laughs> and so I couldn't remember exactly how things played out with uh-huh. him and Jonas. I, but I had not expected it to go like this. I do. I am glad though, that we get this change of perspective that even in this, the, the book has been really good about telling a lot of these things from both Jonas and Roland's perspectives because they are kind of parallels or proxies to one another. And so I'm glad even in these final moments that we do get to experience the battle from his perspective as well, especially since Roland is like completely checked out above the wrist, right? Mm-hmm. His recounting of it is going to be all third person narrator. Instead, we get to have some like internal life through this battle, which mm-hmm. I appreciate. And if anything this internal experience of, of Jonas really does make it abundantly clear that he is no gunslinger. He may be one hell of a mercenary. He may be the baddest son of a bitch that you'll ever meet outside of a gunslinger, but 
And he even had a, the upper hand with Rowan many times throughout the book in terms of strategy because of his life experience. But what mm-hmm. you learn here is that when it really comes down to it, and it's down to training and skill, that... No. Yeah. It just... There is no comparison, and that Jonas is lacking whatever that it factor it is. There there's a reason that he was sent west and i wondered you know is it a character thing like what is it and i think what it really just comes down to is he doesn't have it yeah he doesn't have whatever it is and he doesn't go into gunslinger mode right right that's the thing it's like it's like really clear in the way that this is written is that his first instinct well first of all it's protect the glass yeah (laughs) which may have been hit you know partially been his downfall but like you said his downfall also comes down to him just not having the it fact the gunslinger mm-hmm. factor right whereas elaine and cuthbert and roland have all gone into this gunslinger mode um you picture them kind of like glowing in, in gunslinger mode he doesn't like if he were a gunslinger he would have also snapped into gunslinger mode he yeah. would have had this epic showdown right between him and roland but instead he calls for his men like he calls out to like 39 other dudes to help him defeat these three boys as he's called them mm-hmm. rather than go into gunslinger mode yeah. so you see yeah it, it just makes him seem weak yeah i mean part of it i think also is the, the it's very clear that the ball has its claws into him mm-hmm. if you think back to that confrontation that he and roland had outside the parquet they, he describes Jonas pulling his gun in a way so quickly only Roland can see it with his gunslinger eyes. Yeah. So he has the training. There's something there. But in this moment, he doesn't reach for his gun. He, yes, he calls out to his, his people around him instead of defending himself, but in, he doesn't even think to reach for his gun. All no. he's thinking about is protecting the glass. Right. Which, he's like, Roland's not going to shoot th- Not yeah. going to shoot this. He won't, He doesn't want it broken. No. Yes. Yeah. He assumes everyone thinks it's the precious. Yeah. But he is wrong. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And in this moment, Jonas's inadequacy is basically proven, right? This thing mm-hmm. that he is so ashamed of and so afraid of people to know about, that he is so shamed by being called out for by Roland, is proven in this moment. And, uh, Yeah. He's no match for a real gunslinger. There's also this moment where he's watching Roland ride toward him and he is struck by the essentially like mythical nature of Roland that even at 14, he's, he gives off this, this essence of almost being like something out of myth. And Jonas thinks, gods, it's him. It's Arthur Eld himself come to take me. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we know that Roland has some of that now because Eddie will witness it and just kind of be like, this is inhuman. Mm-hmm. Or when we saw them outside of Lud with the, I can't think of the uh, water, some, I can't remember the name of the town, where there were the old people who remember the gunslinger and you get to see him kind of in this almost, you know, warrior monk role. But even here at age 14, he's, he already is projecting the sense of, this mm-hmm. life, of something mythical. It's yeah. really cool. And it's like Jonas just at that moment, like you said, like sees him. Here's this mythical figure. I am no match for this. You know, I, yeah. he has come for me. Yeah. I am done. Yeah. He just kind of gives already, into it. He had already given up in his mind. He was yeah. like, not, what is it now? You know, I do not sh- shoot with my mm-hmm. and i shoot you know but he did not go into that kind of he did not shoot with his heart at oh, all no um so the aftermath of the the battle is good news bad news mm-hmm. the good news is cuthbert and elaine have proven themselves we knew that this was essentially their gunslinger proving and they have come yeah, out on the other end gunslingers. The yes they passed their trial they, they can't believe it <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, and Roland has succeeded in capturing the grapefruit, so good for him. Except that he right away gets sucked into it. Yeah, this thing it just. <sighs> Yeah, it is powerful. And if you thought, you know, Jonas was a tasty morsel, imagine a gunslinger, mm-hmm. right? And even though Cuthbert is reminding him, like, hey, you know, this is only the first half of this battle. We still got to go deal with Latigo's men. Mm-hmm. And they, unlike now where we have the element of surprise, they've heard us shooting. Yeah. So we need to get going. It like And Roland is fresh out of gunslinger mode. He still is swayed and sucked into what he sees in the ball. Whatever it is. We don't know yet. He's so. just, yeah, he's f- fixed on it. Yeah. ruh Cue the ominous music. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yep. So that is it for this chapter. All right, Randy. Overall, what did you think of this chapter? Well, you know, I felt that it was, of course, like a really awesome action set piece. Yeah. Uh, and it was sort of like you put it this like finally this culmination we finally get to see the big showdown between roland and jonas and that's what it really comes down to right and you know even though we saw it at the at the bar you know there was a there was a bit of it there that was almost like the the first part of this Mm -hmm. right relationship between these two characters and now we're gonna see the culmination of that and so i thought for that i mean it was a really um you know iconic yeah scene um mm-hmm. you know n- nothing you're quite like anything i've i've read or or you know i've imagined happening and, and like you said king really plants this in the theater of your mind right you're 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 imagining this play out and you're seeing like this is these are gunslingers this is what they this is what they're trained to do this is the the whatever it is they have like this factor that they have doing this um and you know you you get a lot of information you, you, like the glass you you just find out like how what a grip it has on people mm-hmm. it, we've been seeing what it's been doing to Rhea but you know as it passes across people like you you get that wow this thing is crazy powerful and like it basically you touch it and you're just in its in its grasp yeah um so yeah i mean it is a one hell of a setup yeah (laughs) kind of for the final act um Uh and and you know it just given what happens at the at the very end with roland and the glass and what is he seeing in there you just can't help but think it's not good right right yeah this was a great chapter i'm a little sad dj isn't here just because this is such a dj chapter yeah but i know we read it so there's that yeah, there's great character stuff in here. Susan gets a star moment. Cuthbert gets a star moment. And this book has been building, 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 building to this. And I felt like even though this isn't the like final, final culmination, we still have to deal with Latigo's men. I do feel like there was a satisfying conclusion to this arc with Jonas. Yeah. For the most part. Could I have taken more? I could have taken more. But overall, I am satisfied. Um, it was, like I said, it was great to see Cooper get to be, I got, it was great to see him. He, like, he's such a jokester and he's played as Roland kind of treats him like he's a jokester and, and to get to see him really kind of come into his own as mm-hmm. a warrior, as a gunslinger, it was really fun. 
Although I feel like Elaine really gets short. <laughs> right, right. There's all this focus on. I hope Elaine gets of... a great moment in the next fight. Right, right. Because you're like, all right, Roland's being a badass. Yeah. Cuthbert is got this slingshot and yeah. he's just taking out these these uh, these fools, right? Yeah. And then what about Elaine? What about <laughs> Elaine? Wanted, wanted... Justice for Elaine. <laughs> some justice. Some justice for Elaine. Yeah, Susan got some justice. Yeah, uh-huh. this is a great chapter. Really liked it. I'm super excited what happens next. All right, plan for next episode. For those of you who are reading along, we are going to be covering Wizard and Glass, Part 3, Come Reap, Chapter 10, Beneath the Demon Moon 2, Sections 1 through 13. All right. Connections to Stephen King universe, none that I spied this time, but if I missed them, be sure to drop us an email. Um, and there's no real Stephen King news right now. The trailer came out for Lisey's story, which does tangentially have some Dark Tower stuff in it, because, I mean, it's multiverse, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it looks really good, but it is on Apple Plus, and um, the vibe that I'm getting is not a lot of people have Apple Plus. So hopefully people will get their eyeballs on this. I will. I'm sure I'll be talking about it on upcoming episodes. I don't think we're going to cover it in like we do with the stand. Yeah, Yeah. no, but I I will definitely be touching down about my thoughts as I go through it because I am really looking forward to it. Because I read the book and in typical Rachel fashion, I do not remember it. (laughs) But my general impression was that I really liked it. So, Uh and I love Julianne Moore. So hello, I'm going to watch. And Jennifer Jason Lee, forget about it. Of course I'm going to watch this. Okay. So, for those of you at home, if you want to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. Maybe you had some thoughts on this chapter, some thoughts going into the next chapter, whatever the case may be. Maybe I missed something. Drop me a line. Drop us a line at castofcallatzombiegirls.com, or you can come over to the Facebook group and hang out with us there. And if you like the show, please re- leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you are getting your pods. If you're looking for something spooky to watch tonight, check out our video on demand and streaming calendar on the Zombie Girls website. If you're a nerd who likes video games, which if you're a nerd who likes video games, you're going to like the extended episode, but we'll get to that. <laughs> um, check out our Twitch channel at twitch.tv forward slash zombie girls. If you want to look awesome, get some of our merch at tpublic.com forward slash zombie dash girls dash podcast. And if you love the show and you want to support us and you want more of this content, you should uh, support us on Patreon. For instance, every episode is an extended episode. And this time we are going to be talking about, our dream scenario for if they adapted the Dark Tower series into video games. So video game nerds, mount up. <laughs> Let's ride. <laughs> We're going to do this. All right. And uh, for those of you who are supporting us, thank you so, so much. It means absolutely everything to us that you care about our little tiny corner of the internet. Okay. So I'm going to call you DJ again. <laughs> so Randy. If yes. people were like, oh my god, this guy is awesome. I want to know more about him. I want to involve, I need to hear his dulcet tones again. Whatever the case may be, where can they find you on the internet? Well, um, you can find me in the background of some Zombie Girls Network <laughs> That's episodes. True. Uh, That's true. Pretty much true. all of them. Uh, but other than that, yeah, I'm not actually like, actively podcasting at the moment. I mean, they can um, listen to back episodes. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. DJ uh, always... He always talks about all the stuff that he didn't know. All right, all right. So I'll, I'll tell tell folks some of this. Uh, if you want to, I, I don't really have a social media presence. Right, probably for the uh, best. So if you want to read, like, lots of old tweets, like, that are spread out over years, uh, but nothing recent, really, Twitter at Danger Penguin. 
you can also find me on Twitch. I do have a Twitch channel that I really need to do some more because I have a lot of fun doing that. It's twitch.tv twitch forward slash danger penguin. But yeah, you can also check out one of uh, the podcasts that, that myself and, and one of my best friends put together. We're big Star Trek nerds. And so we have a podcast that you can listen to the back episodes of called Trek Trek, uh, where we went through and we covered uh, all of Star Trek Enterprise in its entirety. Don't yeah, we, we did the first season of Star Trek Voyager, um, then we did all of Star Trek Enterprise in its entirety, uh, and then the first season of Star Trek Discovery. So if you want to listen along uh, with your viewings of those series, if you're a Trekker uh, like me, uh, please check it out. Hopefully you like it. Awesome. All right. Well, if you want some more of me, you can find me on the Zombie Girls podcast. We review horror films from a feminist perspective. You can find me on the Stream Queens, where we review films that horror films that you can stream on the internet. You can find me on More Deadly. Again, like Randy, there's a theme here uh, where we <laughs> review horror films that are directed exclusively by women-identified directors. And finally, we are almost done, but still working on our Sawathon at the Here's Johnny podcast. I'm trying to think what uh, our review of Resident Evil 8 just came out. I understand that's not a part of it, but it's kind of, it's just how it went. Check us out there. And that should probably be enough. Because that's even listing those, us. that's enough of me. <laughs> Let's be honest. That is more than hey, enough of me. No, oh, more. yeah. All right. So I'm going to put you on the spot. Yes. You going to take us out? All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Cast of Ka. Hopefully uh, you have enjoyed having me as a, you know, a fill-in for, for DJ. I don't know how I did in that respect. Uh, but hopefully uh, at least somewhat well. But yeah, please... Uh, Make sure to catch our next episode, and we shall talk to you then. Well, actually, Rachel and DJ will. I <laughs> will just be behind the scenes. But anyways, check back next time. All right. Bye, everybody. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and to my co-host, DJ, for making me laugh and for indulging all of my tinfoil hat conspiracies. Production on this episode was done by yours truly. Our theme song for the show was created by DJ. DJ.